the privilege of ministering to you these days. Mark 14, verse 32. Hear the word of God. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. He said to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy and they didn't know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want to look at this passage with you now. I want to see faith-seeking assurance, faith being persuaded of what is God's will for the future. Now, the background, of course, is the desolation of, of Christ. The marvellous words with which uh, John opens the Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word was God. It always been with God. Never been a time, never. In the beginning, he was there. He was the eternal Son of the eternal Father. And uh, then when he comes into the world, there is this developed humanity as the, as the years go by. He grew up as a, a child, a boy, an adolescent, a young man, and always appropriating his father early in the day as he woke up, and then at the end of every day thanking his father for being with him and never leaving him alone for the whole day. Uh, in constant intercourse and dependence and interaction with God. God always there, always there, always there to worship, to speak to, to pray to, helping. In every single crisis, getting help from Abba Father. And the one thing of which he had no experience was the loss of God. The one reality he'd never known, the loss 
of God. Mornings, evenings, weeks, years. And this then was uncharted territory. He knew that come tomorrow he would have to go through the valley, that valley, the valley of the loss of God. He would have to be in a wilderness where no man dwelt, in a land where you cried to God and God didn't reply, where you cried to God, why? God didn't tell you why. The loss of the face of God, the loss of the sense that God loved him so much, the loss of the comfort of God, the loss of the experience of all the promises of God being fulfilled in his life, the loss of the sense of the help of God. He was going to be without God. We could illustrate it perhaps by going back to the wonderful narrative of Abram offering up Isaac. And one of the great things that's built into that story is the emphasis that both of them went up together. Abram and Isaac went up together. And that's the way it had been with God the Father and God the Son at Bethlehem and at Nazareth and in Galilee and in Jerusalem and in the upper room, God just with him, surrounded him, in him, before him, and beneath him, above him, alongside him, always there. And they went up to Calvary, both of them together. Never for a single moment was God not there. God always there. They were together. But in the most uh, appalling moment of all, when he most needed God, they weren't together. God wasn't there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's that fact, it is that reality as an imminent reality, as something that's only hours away, the loss of God, that's what our Savior found overwhelming. The fear, he, he, he wouldn't cope. He wouldn't be able to handle it. He was overwhelmed. We're told he was amazed. It's the word that's used of the disciples when they come on the third day and the tomb is empty. The grave clothes are there. He's not there. They were amazed. There's an eeriness, goosebumps, this reality. And that's why our Lord is overwhelmed. And one thing I must say that uh, emerges from it, how misguided is the indifference or even the peace of mind which men and women who don't know my Saviour, who've never bowed to him, who've never spoken to him, don't understand him, who've just kept him out of their life. The utter indifference they have to death and the loss of God. 
and ourselves, even as Christians. We engage in actions. And you know, if you go down that road, if you continue on that road, you're going to lose God. And is that loss one thing above all that terrifies us? I might lose God. And if we are not Christians, if we are not saved, again, do you realize you are moving towards an open-ended encounter of this terrible reality that filled Jesus Christ with such a dread? He was, he, he was troubled. The most equanimous and balanced and all-round and self-integrated man this world has ever seen the only holy sane man and he was troubled at the loss of God and then I can turn it this way also that there are times in the lives of some of God's people when God's providence for ourselves is eerie if I may be so bold, it makes our hairs stand on end. There's, there are moments when there's an awesomeness in our own experience. Remember Jacob when he spoke at Bethel and he said, this is a dreadful place. This is a place full of dread. And there are moments in our lives when we are hardly able to cope with them. The providences are so unmanageable, so big. God has allowed this to happen to me, to my children. And we feel as Christ felt, my, my soul is overwhelmed. A frowning providence. I'm not saying they are common experiences or that every believer has them. But I want us to have a place in our theological universe for the possibility that one day we will stand in a situation that though it's not exactly identical to that of Jesus Christ, there are some, some elements of Gethsemane there. I believe that for us there's never a Calvary, but there may very well be moments for us when we are overwhelmed with the feeling of the sheer heavenly unmanageableness of the pregnancy of the providences through which we're going through. The smiling face of our Heavenly Father is, is hidden. And maybe when you see some of the people in your congregation or in your family that are broken and then they're overwhelmed. You won't judge them harshly. You won't want to chivy them along. Come on, come on now. It's working for your good. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know the way in which God is dealing with their souls. So you have Jesus Christ in this emotional condition. It's the charter for Christian feeling. It's the charter for Christian emotion, for Christian vulnerability. 
for the right of the man of God to be overwhelmed with sorrow, to be distressed and troubled. And there are moments that that is how we react to a dispensation of God for our lives. That's the background to our Lord praying. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed. Jesus prayed. And we find that three times the Lord is reported to us having prayed. Now, why is that worth reflecting on? Well, surely the fact itself that he prayed. He prayed. You know what prayer is? Prayer is impotence grasping at omnipotence. And here is Christ praying. In Christ, the reality of impotence reaching out towards omnipotence. His prayer is the greatest single indication of his own dependentness, of his own independent human sense that with his limited human created resources, he couldn't face alone what was looming up and crashing into his life. He simply didn't have the human energy by himself to go through it. And I think we must drive it and ram it home to the depths of our own consciousness that being dependent is not a sign of sinfulness. It's a sign of createdness. It's a sign of humanity, of humanness. It's a reminder to us that if he felt he couldn't bear the load, if he felt he couldn't climb this mountain, if he felt he couldn't ford this torrent, if he felt he couldn't overcome this trial except in strong cryings and tears which he offered to God, how before God can we hope to go through life day by day and say to God, Father, it's okay. We can handle it and never come before God with a crushing sense of our own dependentness, of our own sheer impotence. Because when Christ is praying, he is saying in the most eloquent fashion possible, there's no way. In my naked, in my unaided humanity, I can carry this cross, that I can bear the nails and the spear and the mockery, that I can finish the work that I can suffer being abandoned by my heavenly Father, that I can bear such a load and emerge from this trial. And that's why you have a praying Christ. He's the incarnate Son of God. He lives by the incarnation of God's omnipotence. He is the power of God in the flesh. He is the wisdom of God. He is the enfleshment of all the abilities of God's grace. And yet he is praying. 
And doesn't it say to us that no matter how long you've been in the ministry, what stature you might have, what recognition you might have, what graces God has given you and sustained in you, in the number and in their quality, in the length and depth of the Christian experience you've had in a long life, there is no way you can emerge into a situation where you are spiritually independent of God. There's no way. You can face any day without God, without prayer, without going into his presence. You can't climb any mountain without prayer. I don't mean that you should develop a prayer life in the sense of Christian mysticism, when prayer becomes a sort of end in itself. But I do mean that we can only survive in the awareness of our own impotence. That every load is too big, every privilege is too big, every obligation is too big, every burden is too big, every temptation is too big. And here is Christ, and Christ never failed. And Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit, and Christ had the most marvelous charismata on a human level alone. He had more right than any other creature to pretend to being independent And yet here is felt impotence grasping at omnipotence. And not only that, but the the earnestness with which he prays. He not just prays, he collapses to the ground. Indeed, he throws himself on the ground. He is there. He is so low. And we know from elsewhere not only that there was a prostration of earnestness, but that he agonizes. I I, I mustn't stop praying now. I mustn't sleep. I'm tired. I'm weary. It's been three long years, but I must pray. I've got to pray. I've got to go to my Father. I must. And as he prays, his sweat is like great drops of blood. As the spiritual struggle is registered even on with physical consequences. So he prayed. So we start there, then we go a little further, and there's something else I can see here. The fact that it was not God's will to hear the Lord's prayer. Cup didn't pass. And part of what I've got is this marvelous paradox of the Messiah praying for what God did not intend to give him. Praying earnestly, praying again and again for what God did not intend to give. And sometimes we get into terrible trouble in our own souls because it seems to us God doesn't listen to our prayers. Remember Paul had a thorn in the flesh and it throbbed and it troubled and kept him awake and he couldn't travel and he he couldn't sleep and he couldn't do the things he wanted to do and he came three times, rolled it out before God, described it to God. Do you know you know, what I could do. You know, deliver me from it. Praying earnestly. 
I don't say he was an unspiritual man. He was a baby in the faith, asking for things that God didn't intend to give. He ought to have known that the thorn was the will of God for him, and he ought to have rejoiced in it. There's no hint at all of that. We have in Paul the creature expressing his creatureliness, his shrinking, his longing to escape from what he fears is God's will and what he longs will not be God's will. And in that passion, in that earnestness of importunity and commitment, the Lord is praying that God's will may be different from what he dreads, from what he has reason to believe. It is God's will. You see, you say, well, the moment you know something is God's will, then it's easy. Well, maybe for some of us it is. But the whole glory of Gethsemane was that God's will wasn't easy. It wasn't easy even for the Lord himself, even for him, any more than the thorn in the flesh which was prescribed by God and delivered by Satan was easy for Paul. It's no use you going saying, come on, brother, now. Come on, brother, brother Saul. It's, uh, it's God's will. It was still sore. And there are many times in life when a thing is God's will and it hurts dreadfully. It really hurts. It hurts bad. And we shrink from it. And we cry to God that we be delivered from it. And today, I must confess, I don't feel as bad as I used to when I find God's will difficult to bear. And I don't react critically when I find God's poor, struggling people. And they say to me, brother, this is hard. Because it is hard. And God's will is sometimes hard. It was hard for Christ. And I'm not surprised when those going through those things plead with God to change things. Lord, bend the universe. Lord, make things different. Christ in his agony, crying, sweating blood, probing father is there any possibility of a different cup i want a, a different cup from this cup very badly and he throws himself on the ground for a different cup he was the archetypal man he was god's great definition of a man He was, Luther says, the proper man. He's the pioneer, the author, the finisher of our faith. And I take such comfort from this. He's not finding it easy. He doesn't find automatic comfort in the knowledge that it's God's will 
doesn't take it in his stride. He's praying and he's praying earnestly. And yet he is praying submissively. Nevertheless, although it's agonizing and fearful, the unknown, what lies before me, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine, thine. There are marvelous depths here, aren't there? There are two wills, and they're not exactly coincidental. That which Christ wanted, what Christ desired, what Christ longed for, was not exactly what was in the cup. And yet there is a submissiveness. It's not a submissiveness that pretends really that's what he wants. But where there is an acknowledgement I feel the pain. The pain is overwhelming. It's crushing. I'm hurting so badly. I'm telling God about how wretched I feel. So sore. But if this is your will, I'll take it. Take what he gives and love him still, though good or ill, whoever lives, Baxter says. Sometimes, as I try to bear that load and move through the pain, a voice is saying to me, you can't be right with God, because if you were, you'd enjoy it. It's, it's God's will. I do not, I don't believe that. I don't believe that Christ enjoyed Calvary. It was pain, but it was God's will. And he was submissive to it. Not my will, but thine be done. That is the secret of Christian contentment. And let's move on um, with regard to our Lord's praying. There's this... uh, the fact that he was answered and the way he was answered. It's amazing that he prays and he prays so earnestly and he prays so submissively in the way God answers. You see it? It's not in Mark's gospel. There appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. Luke twenty-two forty-three. Now, let's think about that angel for a moment. One of our theologians, Rabbi Duncan, said that um, after he had seen Jesus, he was looking out for the angel that comforted his Savior in Gethsemane. He longed to see him. Well, you consider that angel, one of the holy angels bright, who wait at God's right hand and through the realms of light fly at the Lord's command. On that particular day, all the angels gathered to receive instructions from the Lord, and uh, this one was given 
the most astonishing instruction of all. He said to him, go to my son. You'll find him broken. You'll find him lying on the ground. You'll find him sweating blood. You'll find him there in the garden of Gethsemane. You go and comfort my son. Comfort your Lord. Comfort your creator. Speak words of strength and consolation into the heart of my only begotten son. And that's what the angel did. There was never a, a more privileged and more amazing mission for a minister of God to accomplish than the mission of this angel to comfort his God. Now, how did he do it? Well, we'd love to know, wouldn't we? We're not told. Maybe, as Hugh Martin suggests, that he, he comforted him by adoring him by prostrating himself before him and worshipping him in all his weakness. Or maybe with his six wings, with two of them, he flew and two he covered his feet and two he covered his eyes at the sight of his Lord on the ground there. And he cried, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Or perhaps he came to Jesus and he said, Your Father sent me. He tells me to tell you how much he loves you. He's never loved you so much as he's loving you now. What honor given to an angel sent to comfort his Lord. And then I want us to see what happens next. Having prayed and be comforted, he emerges from that garden composed. He's in charge again. He comes, they're sleeping again. He wakes them up, rise, let's go. He's gone through the struggle. I would say with all reverence that for a moment he is faltering, not sinfully faltering, but humanly faltering. He says he's overwhelmed. But now you come to verse 42 and he's not overwhelmed, is he? This is, he draws himself, he gets up, he stands erect, he's composed in the supernatural strength of the angel's comfort all the resources that have been sent from heaven zooming in on him that now lift him up and he's ready for Golgotha rise let's go here comes my betrayer and they see the lights and the swords and the staves and the torches of the men come to arrest him. And from that moment on, you have a masterful Christ. You have one when Judas comes, he's in control. The one when he stands before the various courts of Pilate and Herod and the Sanhedrin, he is fully composed. It's a great word to ourselves that there is a, a strength that can come to us. There's a composure and a peace and an acceptance 
of the will of God that can come to us when we've spread it out before Lord and then we've said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And we've come ready, ready for the future, ready to face the meeting, ready to face the specialist, ready to sit and hold the hand of a dying loved one. Then let us just uh, look at the next thing, the failure of, of the disciples. Such patent, such spectacular failure. They're taken with the garden, into the garden, to be, to be with him, to help him, to stand in solidarity with him, that he can see them. Ah, I've got my, my buddies, my brothers. I, I've got them here, and they're going to watch with me. They, they, when I'm praying, they look out for the torches and, and the enemy that's coming, and I can give myself to prayer. At every single level, there was monumental failure. Uh, it's worth, for a moment, pondering the circumstances. You will notice, for example, that they failed in spite of their office, their position. These men were apostles, Peter and James and John. They were amongst the most eminent of the apostles. They were the three from the inner group. I don't know in what ways to turn this. Shall I say, the church expects too much from its leaders. Shall I say that? Or shall I say, leaders presume too much on their status, as if the office by itself was going to keep us. And both those things I've said are, are true. Every church must know the man who stands in this pulpit and, and preaches to you is a human being. He's vulnerable. He fights his spirit against his flesh and the flesh against the spirit and he falls and he stumbles. He's never preached a sinless sermon He's never prayed a sinless prayer. He's never gone through a sinless day. And sometimes he's overwhelmed. And every leader must recognize that for himself. He's a falling man. He's a weak man. He's a stumbling man. He's a failing man. And in fact, in his weakness, then his strength comes because his weakness makes him cling by his fingertips to God's grace. If he pretends otherwise, his whole personality will break in the struggle which that dissemblance involves. The church must reckon with the creatureliness of its leaders. And they must recognize themselves, their own humanity. The grace that taught them to fear and grace that relieved those fears, that grace alone can take them home. No, no other way. Only, only the grace of God. They, their office won't keep them. 
take heed to yourselves. And then you see they failed despite their privileges. They spent all those years, three long, extraordinary years, the greatest years that this planet, this cosmos has ever seen. And they'd spent it with the Lord Jesus. You know, we are so naive. We measure preachers and pastors in terms of the behavior of their flock. They're, they're officers, they're, they're church members, they're young people even. And we think that wherever there is good teaching, there's going to be impeccability, infallibility in the members of their congregation, that their lifestyle is going to be superb and perfect. Well, these people had been three years with Christ. It was lack of teaching that was the cause of their failure. They'd heard the Sermon on the Mount. They'd heard the parables. They'd been in the upper room and they'd heard the great discourse in his affection as he made it so clear to them. Was it lack of example that they'd had in Christ? Oh, no. Was it lack of pastoral care? It doesn't matter what privileges you've had. The church at Galatia had Paul as its pastor-preacher. The church in Corinth not only had Paul, it had Apollos, it had Cephas. The church at Philippi, with its divisions and people not being of the same mind in the Lord, and Ephesus, they all had tremendous privileges. None of those privileges can keep you. Those disciples, they've just been in the upper room, haven't they, with the Lord. They've broken bread. They drank the cup. He told them all about Then they'd heard the greatest prayer that this world has, has ever heard. They'd sat through it all. And they went from there. They went, there was that huge conference. And they went from there to Gethsemane. And they failed. Within an hour, they failed miserably. There is no way that privileges that God has given you are going to keep you. But furthermore, they failed despite warnings because the Lord had been most emphatic. He'd said as he distributed the, the bread and wine at the Passover meal, one of you will betray me. He said to Peter, you're going to deny me. He said to them all, Satan's here. Do you know Satan's active? And he's going to sift you like wheat. He'd made the peril spectacularly clear. But they were so self-willed. They were so buoyed by the blessings that they'd had in the past years and there in the upper room they were so complacent they said it's all right it's okay he said uh, we'll never forsake you and peter was the most emphatic of all 
Never, he said, never. Oh, they might, not me. Yet moments after the warning, the ones who said they would never, never, never let him down, let him down. The Lord says, oh, Simon, it was just an hour, just an hour to watch and pray. You said, you'd never let me down. You couldn't last an hour, Simon. You know, sometimes uh, Christians say when they hear of lapses on the part of other believers, if only someone had spoken to them, if only someone had warned them, well, maybe that might have helped. But someone had warned these people, someone they enormously respected and loved. And he'd spoken to them most plainly. And so they failed. They failed in spite of the privileges, in spite of the warnings. But more than that, they failed when they were most needed. Because they were needed. They weren't taken into the garden for tokenism. They weren't taken into the garden to be observers and recorders of what he said and of what happened there. Watch with me. That was it. The gregariousness, the humanness of Christ who chose 12 to be with him. He loved John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was a loner. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. John the Baptist plucked camel hair from thorn bushes and wove a, a rough garment and tied it with a strip of, of skin he'd taken off an animal and he lived of eating locusts and wild honey. Jesus went to weddings. Jesus went to parties. Jesus ate with people. Jesus had family, mother, brothers, sisters, half-brothers and sisters that he loved so much. They failed despite the privileges and warnings and they failed when they were most needed. He needed them. He needed them. You go into all the world. You go. You go and stand before the gates of hell. You go when people protest against you. You go. You go. You go there. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. He wanted them to pray with him. He needed them to pray with him. At least stay awake that they do that and not sleep. Maybe when the Lord needs us most, 
when the church needs us most. When our family, our children need us the most. Then we fail. And it wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time, was it? When they come with their swords and torches, they flee and leave him. They abandon him. And Peter warms his hands by a fire in the night and there's no one around. And he denies him three times with cursing and swearing. And on the Mount of Ascension, some of them still doubted after 40 days. And Thomas, he couldn't believe that Jesus was resurrected. And even after Pentecost, ah, there was a great change then. But even after Pentecost, people refused, Peter refused to, to have fellowship with Gentile Christians, men and women who'd suffered much to confess Jesus was their savior. He wouldn't eat with them. He wouldn't sit at fellowship lunch with them. And so it is with us. Those churches you're going back to, they, they need you. You're amongst the leaders of them, whether you want to or not. You are. You're earnest. You're serious. Christ needs you to be like that. He wants you. He wants you. He wants you to go on praying, and he wants you to go watch, watch and pray. That you don't enter into a trial that's too great. That you don't go and Follow the lusts of the mind and the lusts of the flesh and greed and oh, the atmosphere of this fallen, groaning world and that you keep yourself free. You present your body as a living sacrifice to God every day and you seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit day after day and you watch. Watch for the first stirrings of sin you're in a room with a member of the opposite sex and there's no one around and you watch and you pray. The strength you gain from our Savior when you pray. You can't carry the load of the local church that you serve in and that you lead. You, you can't carry it by yourself. You can only carry it with a constant turning to him who hears us when we, when we pray and answers us and gives us exceeding abundantly above all that we ask for or even think of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what trouble we make for ourselves. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Because we fail. We fail to pray. We fail to trust. We fail to watch. And here he is. Left us an example. That we should walk in his steps. You see him on the ground. Who is he? On yonder tree dies in shame and agony. Tis the Lord. 
Oh, wondrous story, tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you've shown us Jesus seeking assurance. Jesus seeking hope now and confidence that this is thy will and submissing to it. And there's no other way that assurance can come to us but this way. Oh, help us. Lead us not into temptations that are too great for us. Please don't. You promise not to. And oh, help us to say, I can get through this. I can do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help the most burdened person in this conference today who's heard these words and trembles at the future. Lord, oh, be with him. Give him much, much grace. Fill him with your Holy Spirit. Surround him by your love. Give him great assurance. My beloved's mine, and I am his. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Help him. And help us, Lord, to be wise and faithful, caring. Oh, may we live and say, for me to live is Christ. Grant it, we pray. Dismiss us now with thy blessing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.